intellectual ascent is only the beginning of faith's story. Next comes the call to baptism. But water, even blessed, is only wet. Water alone could not account for the way John spoke truth to power, or how he could hear the thoughts of those who imagined him, who imagined he might be Messiah, then tell them plainly he was not. Something stronger was at work in him, a power beyond immersion that only descends when we bow our hearts before the Father and confess our need to be blessed, to soak in his spirit, to drown in his love. And so, like Jesus, we wade in the water and wait for the dove, hands outstretched, ready at last to receive the plenty God has had for us since Eden. Scripture from today is from Acts 8, verses 14 through 17. When word reached the apostles in Jerusalem that Samaria had accepted God's word, they commissioned Peter and John to go to Samaria. Peter and John went down to Samaria where they prayed that the new believers would receive the Holy Spirit. This was because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. In Luke 3, 15 through 22, the people were filled with expectation and everyone wondered whether John might be the Christ. John replied to them all, I baptize, baptize you with water, but the one who is more powerful than me is coming. I'm not worthy to loosen the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The shovel he uses will sift the wheat from the husks. And it, it is in his hands. He will clean out his threshing area and bring the wheat into his barns. But he will burn the husks with fire that can't be put out. With many other words, John appealed to them, proclaiming the good news of, to the people. But Herod, the ruler who had been criticized harshly by John because of Herodias, Herod's brother's wife, and because of all the evil he had done, he added this to the list of his evil deeds. He locked John up in prison. When everyone was being baptized, Jesus also was baptized. While he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit came down on him in bodily form like a dove. And there was a voice from heaven, You are my son, whom I dearly love. In you I find happiness. The word of the Lord.
blistering speed. Did I, did I do that? The lectionary flies along with blistering speed as we enter into that season of reading from it in worship. We've gone from star in the east to birth of the Savior to wise men and their gifts to the baptism of our Lord in six short weeks. That's relatively quick. It doesn't give us enough time to process the amazing, magnificent start to the gospel story. It doesn't give us enough time to really capture the details of Jesus' condition in those days in Galilee. We simply rush from Sunday to Sunday in an almost breathless, frantic reading and hearing of the Gospels. And in the space between the last Sunday of Christmas and the first Sunday of the Epiphany, the Sunday that we've now entered into, the Sunday of appearing, the Sunday when God's glory begins to appear in our midst, we, we reach that Sunday and the story takes this 90 degree turn. We think we're going to linger in Jesus' formation and development. Our, our, our logic tells us that we want to know more of the backstory about Jesus, more of, more, of, more of his childhood, more of his adolescence, more, you know, gosh, he, he, he couldn't have been a perfect little guy, right? I mean, apart from my grandson, there are no perfect little guys. And, and, and even he yells way too much. But, but the Gospels don't do that. They don't linger. They're committed to telling us the essentials. And so we come to today's Gospel reading in Luke, where we have gone from the birth narratives and the temple experience and Jesus the adolescent arguing with the faculty at the temple to his baptism, to his getting wet. Baptism has not always been an easy topic for the Christian church to talk about with any sense of unity. In fact, our spiritual forebears here in the Brethren in Christ tradition, the Anabaptist movement, we are so stuck on baptism that we called the whole movement about baptism. Anabaptist German rebaptizers. We thought the first baptism of the Middle Ages, the one done with infants, the one done to count households so that they could be taxed more, uh, wasn't a sufficient one for spiritual growth. So we did it again. Now, these were brave souls because these were folks who baptized outside in Switzerland in the winter. So they were pretty serious about it. They, they required, in many circumstances, running water, which, okay, Switzerland, winter, water doesn't run real well. You've got to break up the ice. It can get, can get cold. 
and no global warming in the Middle Ages. So, so it was a, it took some fortitude to be committed to being rebaptized as an Anabaptist in the 16th century. And because it was a form of protesting the state, because the church and the state were intertwined and the state's tax rolls were the church's baptismal rolls, and if you stopped baptizing your children, well, your tax bill was a little lower every year. Well, the state, they really take exception to you messing with the tax rolls. I mean, that's just a given no matter what time in history we look at. So, the state begins to get a little bit out of shape about these rebaptizers with all this fortitude to get wet in the winter in Switzerland. So they make it a capital crime. So now not only does it require some degree of fortitude to step into the waters in the winter in Switzerland, but now your life is on the line. You could be executed summarily for simply announcing that you'd been rebaptized. And so this movement, our spiritual forebears, saw baptism as crucial, critical. The most important thing we will do as believers in Christ, bearing witness to Christ's cleansing of our hearts. So baptism is more than just getting wet. Although I was reminded in an arcane moment of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, the precursor to Mickey Mouse, for those of you who didn't know that, Oswald the Rabbit was Walt Disney's first character that he drew extensively. And in 1927, Walt Disney drew a short called All Wet, where Oswald the Rabbit was working at a hot dog stand in the beach, and he sees a beautiful young rabbit, female rabbit, and he wants to get to know her better. And a number of hijinks uh, come into play, including Oswald somehow uh, transforming himself into a lifeguard and uh, trying to rescue her when she rows out in a boat to try to get his attention and jumps into the water to be rescued. And it's really not all that good a cartoon. But the title's important, all wet. When we think of people who are all wet, we think they're kind of stupid or silly or full of pretense or not quite up to speed. That's what we think of when we think of those who are all wet. And yet, in the Brethren in Christ tradition, we, we, don't, just, we don't just get a little wet. We, we, don't just, we don't just sprinkle or pour like, like the Mennonites do. We, we immerse. But we just don't immerse, okay? We, we immerse while you're kneeling. So you've got to kind of give up some control. But we just don't immerse while you're kneeling. We practice triune immersion while you're kneeling. So it's three times. And, and it's not just three times sort of passive 
sort of passive, falling back into the water. Oh, no, 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 no. We take you face forward in the Brethren in Christ Church. We make you look for it. Here it comes. One, two, three. You're going to get all wet in a Brethren in Christ baptism. And in, and in, the, uh, in the Millersfield BIC Church in Kentucky, uh, they do it creekside. They, they go down to the river to pray. And, and they get baptized in, in the creek. Baptism's more than just getting wet. It's, it's an act of witness. It's an act of transformation. It's an act that changes us and changes the church. <clears throat> the Acts 8 passage that was read for us this morning is a story about how, what happens when the church begins to take baptism seriously. The church in Samaria began to take its baptism seriously to the point where, where the folks in Jerusalem began to go, hmm, Samaria, different culture. Are they doing it right? Those, those folks aren't like us, you know. They're, they're Samaritans. They're, they're different. They talk funny. They have funny customs. We don't agree with them all the time. In fact, we don't like them all that much. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, we should go investigate. And so we have this curious story in Acts 8 of an apostolic delegation going up from Jerusalem down to Samaria to check out what's going on. It's, it's Peter and John. It's, it's Mr. Truthiness. Peter, the guy who's going to let you know if you're not doing it right. And he's not going to pull any punches, and he's not going to be all that nice about it. He is going to let you have it. And John, John the beloved disciple, John the nice guy. So they've got a good cop, bad cop team going up, going down to Samaria to check out what they're doing. And they discover that that the Samaritans are baptizing in the name of Jesus. That they're they're doing everything right. Now don't you just hate it when when, when the people who you want to stick it to are doing it right? It used to drive me crazy when I was a Mennonite bishop to go into a situation where, where... I knew I had these folks dead to rights on their practice. I, I knew that, that they weren't following the rules. And it was my job to get them to conform to the rules. And all of a sudden, it, they were doing it right. They, they were following the confession of faith. They were, they were practicing the ministerial polity manual the way they were supposed to. They were, in, in the Brethren in Christ tradition, we would say they were they were compliant with the manual of doctrine and, uh, doctrine and governance. Darn it, I hate when that happens. These, these Sumerians were, were doing it right, but, but something was missing. Peter and John sensed something was missing. And so they began to pray to seek the Holy Spirit among these baptized believers. And in our holiness tradition as brethren in Christ, we would say that 
that these folks had experienced salvation, but they still needed to experience sanctification. Now, when it comes to holiness theology, I'm a really good Anabaptist, so I don't know all the ins and outs of that. We should get Lynn Thrush in from Chino sometime to teach us, but but suffice to say that in Acts 8, they saw a two-step process of some kind. And as the apostles prayed with the church, they began to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Out of their quest to follow Christ in baptism. The other story, Luke 3, 15-22, is a story about how it's, it's really the birth story of the Christian movement because it's here that the story begins to change. We've been in, in waiting mode in the first part of Luke's Gospel. It's, stuff's happening, but we, don't, we aren't quite sure how to connect the dots. There's been a star, and there's been a, there, there, there have been these, these remarkable, miraculous births of a, of a prophet, John, and and the Savior, Jesus. There's been, been wise men who show up. There's, there's been this young boy who goes to the temple. And, and now, now, John, Jesus' cousin, begins to unleash his ministry among the people. The, the people we read in 315 are, are waiting and wondering. There's a, there's a, there's a, a palatable kind of anxiety in the community. Something's got to give. Rome can't keep oppressing us this way. And our own leaders can't keep conspiring with Rome to oppress us this way. Just can't keep going on the way it's going. And John shows up and begins to declare good news. He he says, I will baptize you with water. I will engage in the ancient Jewish tradition of cleansing you from sin in this ritual act of washing. (coughs) But there's another baptism that's coming from from a guy who I'm not even good enough to untie his shoes. And, And that baptism will be with fire and with the Holy Spirit. God's gonna, God's gonna clean house. John the Baptist says. And only John the Baptist could make that sound like good news. I mean, we, we hear John today and we go, what a crank. The guy's just full of judgment and foul mood. and But Luke's recounting was that he declared good news. Jesus shows up. But in Luke's gospel, the story gets told differently. In Matthew's gospel, we have the story of Jesus being baptized by John and later imprisoned. Luke reverses them. Luke tells us John's story first. That John, this, this prophet, this powerful preacher, this announcer of good news and judgment, of 
grace and truth. This guy will, he, he, will, he will tweak the nose of Herod. He will poke the powers with a sharp stick because their personal lives are out of whack. And John will go to prison for that and ultimately he'll be beheaded for it. But it's not until Luke reveals that story that he says, oh yeah, and Jesus was baptized. Jesus was baptized and the heavens opened and a voice said, this is my beloved son, do what he says. Folks, the day of waiting is over, the heavenly voice is saying. You've been waiting and wondering, here's Jesus, do what he says. Stop waiting, start acting. Christian movement is born in the waters of baptism. And so, when we think of epiphany, when we think of the manifestation, the appearance of, of God, when we, when we look through the windows, the doorway of our souls, and we, we begin to see God speaking at us, coming towards us, we realize that, that God's glory doesn't appear in fantastic events and earth-shattering news conferences. God's glory appears first and foremost in the waters of baptism, in this ancient future symbol of welcome and inclusion into the body of Christ. The epiphany is about getting wet. The epiphany is, as Christians, we're all wet and that's all we are. Like Oswald the lucky rabbit. We're simply out there in the surf trying to rescue those who are also drowning. But it's the great wave of the Spirit that rolls us into shore and rescues us. And so the, the epiphany of water, the power of baptism, is the event that starts us on a journey. We can, we can begin the journey with Jesus in a lot of ways, but most of that is training exercise until we've decided to get wet. And, and let me just make a caveat here. For those of you who have experienced baptism as an infant and later confirmation in the church, I'm talking about the same process. So uh, once upon a time in the Brethren in Christ, we would crack the whip and make you get rebaptized. We don't do that anymore. Because we recognize that however we go about the work of baptism and confirming people in the faith, uh, the waters ought to unite us, not divide us. And that's really the first point here. Baptism unites the body of Christ. For so long it's divided us. Because we, we want to get it doctrinally correct. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure I want to say this in such a way that it might get podcasted all over the world. But, but I, 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 think, I think the truth of Scripture trumps doctrine. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Whew. 
<clears throat> and so baptism ought to unite us. It ought to bring us together with a common mission. This is my son. You are my beloved. Get busy. That's, that's the role of baptism, to unite us. Baptism unleashes the Holy Spirit in our midst. Baptism frees us because we're just, let's face it, we're just all wet. So we can be free, not, 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 not stuck, but free to live as followers of Jesus. Baptism sustains people through turmoil. It sustains the people of God in the midst of challenge. John's ministry was to baptize people. And, and then he poked a stick at Herod and ended up in jail. And it was those baptisms that sustained him in those dark times. And finally, baptism activates the church to confront the powers. John didn't poke a stick at Herod first and then go baptize. He built a spiritual community. He built people who said, I want my life to be different. I want to be cleansed of all that holds me. I want a fresh start. John baptizes them. And then when he pokes a sharp stick at Herod, the people are enraged. Baptism activates the church to confront the powers. Baptism is a political act. Because we, we tell the world, you know, uh, we have a different allegiance. Our, our allegiance isn't, to, isn't primarily to nation state or tribe or ethnicity or language. Our fundamental allegiance, our basic loyalty, our commitment is to Jesus to be his beloved as he was the Father's beloved. So this morning, some questions for us. How does the memory of your baptismal experience activate your discipleship? When you think back, whether it was last month or last year or 30 years ago, when you think back to your baptismal experience does it does it does it reinvigorate does it reactivate your sense of discipleship my baptismal experience took place when i was 14 years old in a little mennonite brethren church in oklahoma city pastor told me sunday morning we're going to do baptisms tonight so you should come a little bit early and i'll tell you what's going to happen he didn't tell me to bring a change of clothes. <clears throat> didn't tell me to bring a towel. I showed up and we sort of improvised. Uh, and I walked down into this tank that had been built into the stage of our church. And he said a few words to me and, and I affirmed my faith in Jesus. And then he put his hand on the small of my back and grabbed my nose and took me down. I had no idea that was going to happen because I was first. 
he hadn't really clued me in on anything. And I came up, because uh, I forgot to hold my breath, uh, I, I came up sort of like a beached whale, uh, you know, spouting water and coughing, and everybody got a great laugh out of that. But what I remember about that, when I reflect on that, is that in my journey with Jesus, it's been the moments I haven't been prepared for that have been the most transformational. Like the first Sunday I came to this congregation as a consultant, thinking, <clears throat> well, you know, <clears throat> I, I am the expert here, and you know, let, me, uh, let, 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 me, let me tell you what you need to do. And, and discovering instead uh, a group of folks I, I could not sit passively by and be detached from, but a group of people I fell in love with. Totally did not expect that. Totally did not expect it. Um, and God has spoken to me in those moments I haven't been prepared for over and over and over again. Now, you know, soaking wet, dripping like, you know, a retriever out in, in the blind, my pastor says to me, okay, Wednesday night, we have discipleship group be there. And for the next year, my pastor taught me what it meant to follow Jesus. He, he sort of made me get wet first and then told me the implications of it. So for some of you who I recruit to do things, and then I slowly sort of tell you what it's about, Lindsay. Um, yeah, you, you understand my modus operandi now a bit more. How does the memory of your baptismal experience activate your discipleship? How does the promise of baptism, the voice of God who says, this is my beloved, how does that sustain you in difficult times? Because God says that to us as we break forth from the waters of baptism, just like he said it to his son. You and I are God's beloved as well. How does that sustain you in difficulty? How has the experience of baptism unleashed the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? How, how does the Holy Spirit become front and center in guiding you and empowering you, directing you, as you think back to that moment and realize things changed? And how has your baptism been subversive? Now, we're mostly white, almost all middle class, so we're not all that subversive. We, we might want to pretend we're subversive, but, nah, not so much. But baptism's the most subversive thing you'll do because it declares to the world you have a different Lord. Caesar no longer runs the show. The emperor has no clothes. Christ is Lord. He is in charge of our lives. Wherever that takes us. And so how has your baptism been an act that confronts the powers? That makes you a dangerous subversive? 
One more thing. Leave it to Brian McLaren to kind of make it simple. Baptism is rich in meaning. Duh. It suggests cleansing. When you're a disciple, you understand that you are cleansed by Christ. You understand that Christ died in your place on the cross, paying for your sins, fully forgiving you for all your wrongs. You're cleansed from guilt, and you are becoming a cleaner, healthier, more whole person. The days are coming. When the glory of God will appear. And the glory of God appears to us first and maybe most powerfully in the waters. Not that divide us, but that unite us and heal us. Thanks be to God for the waters of baptism.